cliffcentral.com. Unless you've been living under a rock, you probably have heard of Dr. Jerry Mofokeng. He's a South African stage and screen actor. He's appeared in several critically acclaimed films, including Cry the Beloved Country, Lord of War, Mandela and the Clark, and the 2005 Academy Award winning film Tsotsi. He was uh, a man of, of Soweto. He grew up in Orlando at uh, Orlando West High School, then Youth Alive Ministries, went to Witz Drama School, ended up at Columbia University in America, obtained a master's degree in theater directing, and he also decided at age 56 to add his biological father's surname, Lecheta, to the, um, to the name, and henceforth became known as uh, Jerry Mofokengwa Lecheta, after his biological father, whom he knew all along, but he didn't know about uh, being his biological father, that is, until the age of 56. He's got an incredible story. We will go into that and a lot more about the man in um, an interview which co- coincides with the release of his memoirs, which we'll talk about in a moment or two as well. And um, I'm very excited about this. It's called I Am a Man, a memoir by Jerry Mofokeng. It's so good to see you, sir, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. What a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gareth. Uh, it's Macheta, just so that the family Macheta. doesn't slaughter you. <laughs> <laughs> Macheta. So, Jerry, first of all, I mean, it's, it's great to see you. You look like you're in rude health. Um, I know that many people in the acting and the performing and the entertainment business took a hard hit during, during lockdown. I'm sure you have friends who've been affected very badly. How did you deal with it? And, and how have you come through on the other side? Because for many people, it's been a very tough time. I have stayed true to myself, true to my passion, and whilst the bank balance was not always exciting, thank God I have family around me. We never went to bed without food on our tables, and uh, in that time, actually, it was a good opportunity for me to be writing these memoirs. So much as it was stressful in a way, it was a great opportunity to be creative. You know, to a lot of people, time is is very scary and it tortures you because when mm. you don't know what to do with it. And so somehow I got an opportunity to actually dig in and even to think about those stories that Ordinarily, I might not have included here because I did not consider them important. But somehow when you're sitting in silence, Hmm. you think, you think and you remember and you shudder and you write one paragraph and you disappear for two days because it's too scary. And you think, should I tell it? Should I tell it? So, yeah, I survived because it was a creative time for me. Well, I'm very happy to hear that, and I, I'm I'm so happy that you've decided to release a memoir. For some people, that's a difficult decision. Was it something that came easily to you? You have so many stories to tell. You have such an incredible history and an, and, and an, an amazing contribution that you've made to South Africa's arts and culture. Was it difficult to decide to write this, or was it easy for you? I don't know if I have an answer to that, Gareth. Um After I found out about my paternity, I decided to write something, but it was shallow. Mm. I still was hiding from myself. I still was not being vulnerable. And I sat in several environments where we were talking about documentaries. 
and somebody says a documentary is not a pamphlet and ideally you should not write and direct your own documentary right. because there are darker sides of you, weaker sides of you that also needs to be highlighted. So the people at Lux Verbi approached me and said, listen, is there anything you're writing that we can partner with you on? And I said, yes, yes. I'd like to write a book on manhood. And they asked me to send them something. And then they came back to me and said, yeah, we think there's a book somewhere here. But they had to keep digging deeper and deeper. I I did not volunteer myself into some of these uh, passages and gallows and but eventually I did. I thank God. Look, I I respect self-publishing. I I do, and I understand the merits thereof. But somehow, the fact that I had somebody standing by me and say, "Jerry, your deadline. Jerry, you've left this out." And just when I thought I'd finished, they said, "Your book is not concluded. Give us a final chapter." I thought. Susan, what more do you want, says Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> but do you think because you're an actor, it was easier for you to dig deep? I mean, with, with so much of what you've done on stage and screen, you have to be able to go deeper. And and I love what you said about how the first time you, you, you did a draft of this, you thought it was shallow. Um, how do you reach those depths? I mean, for those of us who are not trained and professional actors like you, it's much harder to reach into those places, but you have to do it as a part of your daily bread. You see, there are characters that I act, that I portray, that I have to touch a raw nerve. Hmm. I remember one teacher of mine at Vets University says, look, possibly by the age of 22, 25, you've gone through all the experiences in life. You have lived, you have died, you've given birth, you've killed somebody, you have, you have, you have. You just need to find a way of putting your finger on that. And I guess it's easier to do that with a character than with self. And that's what this book did. I had to turn the camera to myself. And <laughs> that's <laughs> tough. That's tough. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and my wife, I guess, is the person who saw me through it and, and one day will be able to tell the story of the pregnancy and the labor ward and everything. But <laughs> so, so sometimes I woke up at night and said, I, I, I've got something, I've got something, I've got something. I get the laptop, I write, I write, I write one and a half hours and then I sleep. And then I can't believe, especially the beginning of that last chapter. That's what happened. Really? Unedited, I sent it to them. Wow. So so there's so many stories to pick here. And obviously, you've had a very, very interesting and very colorful and very varied life. Um, was it Was it more difficult to see them? Because, again, if you have professional publishers, as you have had, and they're chasing you for deadlines. They also decide they're going to cut out things and leave things in. And sometimes you look at that, I'm sure, and you think, 
Now, why did they cut that out? I thought that was quite good stuff. I mean, did you get attached to some of the material? And were you upset when the editors came in and took out little bits here and there or even bigger pieces if, if they did? Initially, I hated them for it. <laughs> I did. I did. There's a chapter where I give advices to men. Mm. I think just guesstimating they cut out 75% of that. <laughs> they makes cut out un- 40 50 what? pages. Then you wonder why they even asked you to write. But, but, but they said, Jerry, this is not a sermon. This mm. is not a thesis. This is mm. not a how-to book. This mm. is a book, a novel, a, 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 a memoir. Please, if you want to go and be coaching and uh, counseling, write another book. But this is not it. And finally, I understood. Well, I want to get into your story in a minute. But since you've brought it up, I mean, you have got advice for men. Because I think men in South Africa are not necessarily in the best place we could be. We know what the problems are in this country. We know how many of those problems have to do with men not knowing what their role is men not knowing how to behave, what to do with respect to women, to children, to the family, to their responsibilities in society. And I know men get a very hard time, and I don't want us to spend any time at all beating up on men. But what kind of advice? You're a wise elder. You're a sage man who's lived and seen a lot. What advice did you think about when you were putting together that chapter, even if they cut out 75% of it? I think there are many of us who would love to hear what your advice might be to, to men. Um, you see, manhood, getting to that point of positive masculinity hmm. is an inside job, Gareth. It's not an outside job. It's an inside job. And it is a journey that if you make up your mind to take that journey, a journey to maturity, a journey to maturity. Um, I, I have a Bible reference that helps me a lot. The favorite chapter on love is Corinthians 13. Verse 10 or 11 It says, when I was a child, that's past tense, Gareth. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I I analyzed everything like a child. But when I became a man, what does a man mean? When I became mature. Mm. Maturity is about taking responsibility. It's about taking accountability. It's about integrity, doing the right thing when nobody is watching. It's about allowing yourself to be vulnerable. It's about being a man of your word. When your son or your daughter has a concert at school and they know daddy said he's coming and daddy is going to be there, even though I can't see everybody in the audience, the little girl goes onto that stage and keeps looking around. Is daddy here? And after she does her solo, daddy stands up in the audience and applauds. That is for life. That applause is for life. You have built that girl inside. When your little boy scores the first goal 
in those grounds, that goal is for life. And so I am saying, dare to be a man and dare to do you. There are things that are common to all men. There are things that are common to all South Africans. Um, but there are things that are you. Dare to get back to you and dare to grow up to the point of one of the things that one needs to do is the ability to say no to yourself, even in those things that would have been nice, but they are childish, they are irresponsible. So when your friends call and say, bro, we've got a Vienna here and we've got girls from UJ, let's go to Clarence. And you say, apologies, I'm not there anymore. I'm not coming. I'm not wanting to live like a child, like a boy. I am a man. Jerry, those are powerful words. I, I wonder how many people in South Africa, young men, but but all of us, I think, are, are, are somehow, um, I, I certainly feel those words very deeply. You know, to, to be personally responsible, to be accountable, is something that many people are not taught. They either have to learn, as you said, you have to do the inside job, you have to teach yeah. yourself, or you stumble upon a good role model somewhere in your life who's able to help you. So many of our young men in this country grow up without fathers who are present, grow up without a wise elder like you in the household. And they have to find this as if by magic. It's almost as if we expect them to do something which we would never have expected of, of, of anyone else. It's almost an impossible task. And then when they don't get there, we punish them for it. Um, where do you think it all fell apart for so many young men in this country? And, and why is it that we've got a generation repeating the mistakes of the former generation? I accept, and this is no excuse, I accept we come from wounded tigers. We come yes. from wounded tigers. We come from disabled, crippled, beaten up fathers, uncles, grandparents. And uh, yes, there's apartheid that has had its part in it, but also in our families. Gareth? Yes. This thing, this thing, uh, what's the big English word? Um, for for broken masculinity, toxic. They, they call it patriarchy or toxic masculinity. Yeah. Yes. What's that about? The simple example I'll give you is when you go to weddings in the township, and there are all sorts of festivities, and then at some point they take this thirty-three-year-old girl. And they put her in a bedroom and they give her to grandmothers and mothers who tell her to Nyamezela. That's their primary prescription to that girl. Mm-hmm. It is you must endure. There are cripples and disabled people in this family. You must never ask a man where he comes from. And sometimes when he has cheated and beaten her up, Ah, look, he got married to you. He supports you. At least you, you, you are all sorted. 
don't worry about it. He is a man. And so patriarchy is about we excuse men for mm. nonsense. Allow me mm. to use that word because yes. I feel that strongly about it. We excuse men for nonsense. And so they do not volunteer themselves out of that comfort, out of that protection. And it is both men and women who excuse the men in those things. So from childhood, the little boy is taught to sit down and play games on the on, on, on the TV and fight for the remote control. The sister must go and wash dishes and the sister is the servant. He must just sit there and be served all the time. And, and, and he gets married. He's never gone to buy groceries. He's never known what it's like to take responsibility for this and that. And so quite often as families, we outsource our sons to babysitting by their wives. We don't raise them to be men. And so what I'm saying is this patriarchy, we're all guilty of it. We all, I might not say guilty, but responsible. We need to no, take responsibility. We are. I mean, I know, I know grown men who, who are looked after and, and, and their whims are indulged by their wives and their girlfriends and even their mothers and sometimes yeah. even their grandmothers. And, they, and they're treated like they're something special. And they've yeah. earned nothing. They've earned nothing. Yeah. They, they, they haven't necessarily lived up to the, the responsibilities and the expectations of those women in their lives. And yet they still get away with being treated like that. And we're talking, by the way, Jerry, we're talking about rich and poor. We're talking about yes. old and young. We're talking about black and white. This is a big problem in society. Yes, sir. And, and nobody dares to call those men to order. Nobody. Nobody. No, at least nobody. Least of all, and I hate to put responsibility on the women here, but least of all the women in their lives too, because yeah. they, they do revere them. And you know, these men are also sometimes, if they are raised by men, they, they these are, the ideas are reinforced and that's even more toxic and dangerous because then yeah. you end up with them thinking that this is their right as well. And oh, well, that's how all men have been treated from the dawn of time. So let's yeah. carry on like that. I'm curious yeah. about the, the, the role that, Particularly fathers in your, in your mind and, you know, your father, this story is a beautiful story. I'd like you to tell the story of your dad and, and why you changed your surname at age 56 and incorporated, uh, the, the, the new part of your surname and what your father meant to you. Because I think that's instructive to so many of us. It gives us an idea of why you feel the way you feel. Mr. Macheta was no angel by any measure. He was not. But he's my father. Hmm. And please understand, the first day I got these news, I cried like I've never cried. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not being dramatic. I cried myself to sleep. I, I explain this in the book. Uh, there's a Susutu saying that goes, and 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 the cow is the economy for Mosoto. And mm. when you get married to a woman, 
uh, her value, her worth is counted in terms of cattle. And so my mother gets pregnant with me when she is already married to the Mofugeng family. And according to Basoto, that womb belongs to the Mofugengs. And therefore, when I am born of her, I am a Mofugeng child. And my mm. grandfather, from what I understand, he said to Mr. Mufugeng, the man in whose house I was born, he said, look, things like this happen, man. Things like this happen. It's not the fault of the child, and we're not going to kill this child. And you're going, I want my daughter-in-law to continue to live in this house. She will only go out of this house in a coffin. And so she stayed in that house. And I grew up Jeremiah Matibe Mofokeng. I don't know, possibly this man did not, absolutely he was wounded by that particular act. And my mother tells me, Jerry, when you were a, a baby in my arms, I, I, I was so, I had so, such a scarcity of clothes and blankets and everything, I used my breast to warm me, to keep you warm. She tells me that. And um, so I grow up in this family, and my grandfather takes me to Lesotho at around the age of four, and I live in Lesotho for six to seven years. And he passes away in 1964, so I live another four years in the, uh, under poverty. Poverty, poverty, poverty. And my grandmother hated me with a passion. One day I remember she spit in my face because I, I dared to rebel against favoritism. And, and so I grew up being Jeremiah Mofogane. And then at age 58, I find out who my biological father is. And so the, the, the cow and the DNA are in competition. But please understand, my children and my children's children need to know their true identity. And therefore... I want to acknowledge the Mufukens for having raised me all those years. Uh, but then I have to tell everybody who exactly I am. And so Mufuken Wamacheta is no artistic fashion. It is my journey. It is my life. It is my identity. It is a combination of the cow and the DNA. You, you, you write beautifully in the book about how your mother says you used to, used to cry when you were, when you were introduced to your father's family, um, you, the Mofok gangs, that is. And that so late in life, when you, when you dis- discovered this, I thought it was 56, you said 58 years old. Um, did you ever have a chance to have that conversation with your father? No. No, when I that, must be, that must be very difficult. That must have been extremely hard to have gone through your life having 
you you knew the man, but you obviously didn't know he was your father until after. Um, there must be a lot of regret. Hey, secrets, man. Mm. Gareth, secrets. And please hear me out. It's possible that 20% of children in this nation have wrong identities. Now, let me give people the benefit of what you referred to a little earlier. My mother takes me along to Lesotho, to Mufugeng homestead. And when we Mm. enter the homestead and she goes into her heart, this little baby in her arms starts crying. And and she has a breast, yes, she the baby cries. And one wise old woman goes to her and says, Meh, go and tell the child who their father is, who they are. Please just go outside and do that. She goes outside. Ah, Tula, Tula, Tula Mugwena, Tula Wanamacheta, Tula Wanawanaka. Chupster. Really? This is not this is not black magic. This is not superstition. When when that child knew who they were. That's Nobody insane. had told them, I mean, but inside they knew who they were. The <laughs> DNA was there for Mugwena. You get you give me chills. By just saying the name, you stopped crying. Yes. My mother, my mother knew who my father was. She knew. Hmm. She knew. And, and how well did you know the man who was your biological father through your life? How, how, how much of a role, how, how, how close did you ever become? How many conversations did you have, even though you didn't know what was really going on? My mother, to keep the fires burning at home, she had a shebeen. She had a shebeen, and Mr. Macheta used to come and quench his thirst at my home with the other man. I, I did not know. I did not suspect. So I guess I just spoke to him like all the other customers. And then my mother asked him to give me a job after I wrote metric and got school leaving, so-called. And he was a driver for the CEO of uh, an insurance company, General Accident. And Hmm. I still, up to this day, have an image of him with a Jaguar next to the entrance of that building, Maritime House on Loveday Street, between Fox and Main. And in his black suit, cap and gloves, and sort of dusting the car, waiting for Mr. Little to come, to be driven wherever. And, 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 and I was just coming into the building to go start work. And, and it's that greeting. And that was it. And then my mother tells me, 
um, she kept saying to me, hey man, that man who got you a job, how about you getting something, something is a gift, something. And it didn't quite register to me. And I never did buy him something. And as a symbol from me, I bought my mother a blanket. Very symbolic. I bought her a blanket, but I never bought him anything. And she says to me afterwards, after the discovery, I kept saying to you, Jerry, uh, the man who got you a job, but I did not want to insist because I didn't want you to be suspicious. And so mm. I let go when you did not do anything about it. Wow. The blanket, you say it's so symbolic. I mean, obviously, there's there's the, the link between the basutu and the blanket. There's the fact that your mother tried to keep you warm with just her body heat when you were a baby. This was a, this was a very symbolic present that you gave your mother. What would you, looking back, what kind of a gift do you think you might have given your, your, your biological father if you'd had the chance to do it again? I'd buy him a suit, a shirt, a tie, and shoes so that when he steps out to any family event or church or anything where he is respected as a man, he could step in there comfortable in what he's wearing. That's what I would get him. Sure. Jerry, I, I'm, I'm just um, always amazed at these stories. As you say, there's so many people with secrets. Uh, the fact that you can tell your story might help other people to tell their stories and help their children to, to have this realization earlier on and maybe make relationships that otherwise will just disappear into history. Uh, you also are an extraordinary storyteller, and I can't help thinking that this is part of your career and what you've learned to do better than so many of us. But your career has been extraordinary. And if I can just change tack quickly and talk a little bit about your, your stage and screen career. Um, acting is such a big part of, of your life, but it's also a huge contribution you've made to the tapestry of South Africa and, and helping us to tell our stories. Do you feel that, that the arts in South Africa get the support that they need? And, and what has your role been if you look back on it now? the many young artists you may have inspired, the many incredible stories you may have told, how do you see it from your point of view? And obviously we want people to read the memoir, but but give us a snapshot of that. When you look at what happens, countries like the US and Australia, and you look at the priority that the arts are given, the minister is given peanuts for the sector. Peanuts. I don't know how much more he can do with the peanuts that he gets. Um, it's, it's, it would be nice if every major filmmaker in South Africa got 10 million to do a feature. It's peanuts. It's not even a budget for marketing for an American film, but if we were able mm. to say minimum, there's 10 million and 
we will finance a hundred films a year. Hundred. We are South Africa. We are mm. South Africa. We've got the stories. We've got the talent. We've got the landscape. We've got what it takes for us to say there are ten million times, uh, so many times. Please do it. We could do it. We could say to every major theatre, there is 50 million rands for productions only. Not, not the real estate, not the uh, salaries, but for us to make magic, to put together those productions that could hit the world stage, we, could, we would do it. But you see, at some point, I remember... Uh, somebody wrote to me to say, here's this American artist who's coming to act the role of Winnie in a film. Uh, mm. let's, let's, let's raise dust. And I say, by the way, whose money was, is, is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> money is it? Yeah. America puts its money where its mouth is. Right. And, and you can't and really, America, you can't argue with that. And, 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 and America buys the face before the story. And so it might be our story, but it's their film. And that's what it is. And so I just wish things could change, but I think it's going to take quite a while for that to change. We are the ones who rebelled against the funding of the Performing Arts Councils. Now I regret that because to turn that around and for these institutions to have the kind of budgets that they should be having, they should be getting a hundred million each. And then Mm -hmm. let artists be artists. Today I am forced to be writer, director, producer because the little that is there I have to stretch and perform all those roles. And obviously, I have my own uh, blind spot and my own Achilles heel. And so Mm. our works suffer in some department or the other because of the financial constraints that are there. But I tell you what, we've got talent in this country. That we do. You, you've worked, you've worked with so many talented people over the years. Uh, I mean, you also uh, have, have met and are friends with so many of the luminaries of South African art and culture. People like John Kearney, um, and, and people like the late Hugh Masekela, uh, so many others who you can count among the friends and, and, and family even that you've, you've met over the years. What for you have been the highlights of, of that part of your career? The things that ordinary people like us, we perhaps don't meet these people. Um, and 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 the the fact that we don't get to see them in their natural environment like you did must be very special. More than special. Listen, I God was good to me. I got respect from all these giants. I did a concert of Jonas Guangwa at the hmm. then Civic Theater. I listened to his music. He gave me CDs. He gave me, and I went to his house. We had tea, and I listened to him for my research. And eventually, I said, I'm going to do your show in two halves. The first half is Blue Note, and the second half is Let's Dance. 
And I even wrote for him the links in between the songs and everything. I chose the costumes and all. He listened hmm. to me. He listened to me every step of the way. The bigger you are, the more of a collaborator you are. Because our work is a collaborative art, Karen. It is. If, 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 this, if this interview comes out beautifully, it is because you did your homework and you know how to impregnate and feed the airwaves. And I just cooperate with you. That's the way it works. I worked with Hugh Masikela and Swongile and Mandalanga in, in Mandalanga's play, uh, Milestones. Every step of the way, uh, Mr. Director, what do you want? And, and thank God uh, I had the training. When you talk about VETS and Columbia University, I had the training. And so I can make choices practical and, and successful choices as any, on anything that has to do with theater. And, and so it, it really has been an honor to work with giants. And, and when I say so, I must mention Owen Sejake, whom I directed in Nongok, and, and Gibson Kente's niece, uh, Dambisa Kente. Oh, man. Oh, man. Wow. Wow. Oh. It's a, it's a, it's an incredible career to look back on. I'm, I'm just thrilled that we get to share in it. If we, if we, um, if we read this book and in your book, I am a man. You, you talk about some of the difficulties too. You don't just talk about the good times. You talk about the, the wounds. You talk about how the career is always up and down. And especially in, you know, in the kind of career that you chose for yourself. You never really know when the next project's coming. When it rains, it rains beautifully. But when there isn't any rain, there's a big drought. And you're very yeah. honest about that in your book too, right? That's why it's called a memoir. Listen, I remember talking to married couples and young people about love for all seasons. A year, a year has four seasons. Otherwise, it's not a year. It's a, an extended season. And there will never be spring without winter. Yeah. There is no spring without winter. And so I've had my lowest, lowest moments. I've been ridiculed. I have been shamed. I have been all sorts of things uh, some people know about my story at the Performing Arts Council of the Free State. I was thrown out of that building. Thrown wow. out. And my sin, I, I demand standards. You cannot ask to go into the PSL before you go through the Mozipe League. No. Mm. No. You have to earn the stripes. And I will continue to maintain that. So uh, uh, a friend came to me and said, Jerry, listen, man, listen, you know what happened to a few people where they came out in the front page with scandals and what have you, and, and then there's an apology on page 37. You're a brand. They will tarnish your brand, and you will never be able to recover. Get out of here. 
go home. The very next day, I went and wrote a resignation letter. I gave them one week. In that one week, I kept away from that building. I didn't pack my boxes. I asked people to pack my boxes for me to go home. I've been scarred. I have been falsely accused. Girls have been sent to try and lure me. I have passed the test. You see, they, they, they want to say, as artists, we are corrupt. We sleep with girls and women and what have you. And when you don't, you are a problem because they don't know how to get what they want out of you. When you don't accept brown envelopes under the table, they don't know how to get their place in, onto your desk and into the theater. So being a good man is a problem. It's costly. Mm-hmm. But it does reward you with the kind of family you have. And that's an important part of the book too. As you talk about your wife, you talk about your children. Just tell us how important they have been in your story and how they continue to to be the most important part of your life. Let let me tell you about one incident about my wife. Uh, Maybe two. Um, For me to end up at Vets University, my wife says to me, Jerry, you're restless, man. You're restless. You love this thing. It's, if you don't go and do it, it's going to be a problem for you and for everybody because you will forever be restless. Go to school. This is after we got married. Go to school. I go and audition in 1982 and I get accepted and I work. I, I go to school for four years at VITS. She has to end up going to work at Vets University Library just so that we get some remission of fees and blah, blah, blah. And then, Gareth, my fingers don't take instructions from my head. I can't draw a bed, a flying bed, you know, like a tray standing. I can't. And so she has to help me. And I tell my lecturer, my design lecturer that way, that my wife helps me with these things. So please don't be surprised. And she helps me with my design elements and so on. And so that's how I, rightfully, that certificate should have both of us. Unfortunately, it has only one name. I come back from the U.S. and uh, I'm teaching adverts. And my I have about 12 boxes of books. If you know New York, there are all these cheap, good, out-of-print books on the pavement for one dollar. And I come back with 12 boxes. Uh, And I go to the Fulbright people and I say, can you please put this into uh, diplomatic uh, Korea or whatever? They agree. Mm. They help me. Boom! The books come and I put them in my office at Verge. And one day the office burns. The entire floor. Eighth floor burns. Eighth floor burns. I hit a depression. My wife goes to the kids. She says, listen, daddy is hurting. 
he's bruised, he, he, he's in pain. So uh, I think you'll realize that he's a little impatient, abrasive, and unlike himself. Please understand, mm. it comes from this. I'm asking you not to take it personally. That is how it works. He'll get over it, not too long. Let's give him a chance to heal. And, and wow. I think it was after two, three years when she tells me the journey she took with the kids, I'm, I'm almost in tears to say she knows how to take care of a wounded tiger. She does. So it's things like that that say, I thank God for the wife that I have because she just knows how to take care of me without spoiling me, without excusing me for nonsense. But what I need at a certain time, she calls me to order. She told me one day, Jerry, I think you have daddy issues. I almost killed him. <laughs> I, I got somebody to go and research the, 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 this concept of daddy issues and the symptoms and whatever and whatever. And Vrachdivar, I had daddy issues because I hated Mr. Mfugain because I, I grew up with poverty and with favoritism and blah, 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 blah. And I thought it's unfair because of his own life choices. I suffered through life. And, and, and on the other hand, I, I, I was uneasy, Gareth. You, you read it in the book. I was uneasy. I, I knew that I was not Mofugain. And I started asking questions. And I started asking questions. And she was getting her prayer groups to support me uh, without me knowing. And this and that. And talking to the children about it. Guys, let's do all we can to help. Papa, because I, I, I think this thing is eating him up, and I think there's truth to it. And the night before I found out, she sent a message to a program, please pray for my husband. He is restless. He's in pain. If there's truth to his suspicion, I'd like God to reveal it. And on the 10th of December, which is her birthday, by the way, then somebody stops me at Woolworths in Bloemfontein. So uh, wow. that pillar next to me, uh, yeah. Wow, that, that, that is incredibly moving. Um, that, that many of us will never find the kind of uh, partner that you found here, someone who is just so full of love and support. It's an incredible thing. Um, and Jerry, how do, how do you feel you've stepped up as a father? Because your wife said you had daddy issues. You've explained the story about your father. You've explained the story about uh, Mr. Mofoking. How do you think you've broken that cycle, if, if indeed you have? I, I took the opportunity to educate myself to empower myself. I read the books. I went to seminars. I went to counselors when 
in doubt or in a uh, dilemma. I've done those things that have made me vulnerable and those things have helped me. I think what helped me is to be teachable and, and exposing myself to those sources, those individuals, those processes that taught me and prepared me to become a man. And so it's no excuse. My father denied me. My father abused me. Uh, Men in the society, the government, apartheid. I went Mm. beyond excuse to invest in myself, and that has helped me. It's a very moving story. I I can't tell you um, that I didn't uh, once or twice shed a tear. Uh, this is this is a unique and and beautiful story. And as I say, you tell it well because this is your craft. So it is a great pleasure for me to be able to talk to you about the book. And I encourage anybody who is even thinking about it to get themselves a copy of "I Am a Man," which will be available soon by Doctor Jerry Mufukeng Wa Macheta and. Uh, I hope, sir, that uh, you continue to inspire all these young people. I know some people who've who've, uh, been fortunate enough to be your students at university. Um, I know some people who've worked with you in film and on stage. All of them speak so highly of you. It's it's really a privilege to have your time with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And you're great at getting it out of me. I thank you for your own craft at catching it on the airwaves. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Tati. Good to see you. Thank you, sir. Great day. Dr. Jerry Mofokeng Wa Macheta. What a pleasure.